Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell. A couple weeks ago, I asked you, listeners, for your advice on how I can become unexhausted. I do not need advice on how to relax. I'm very good at relaxing. But I have had the seemingly endless feeling of being worn out or down or whatever direction you choose. Turns out, maybe we all are suffering from some level of fatigue considering the working lives we lead spending far too much time on call or at work the problem is fatigue cannot be measured or detected by medical instruments and if it cannot be measured then is it a disease medical technology would seem to be an objective way in which to determine if a suffering patient is indeed ill But what about the more subjective measure of how a patient is feeling? Far too often, patients, how they feel and their feelings, are dismissed by medical professionals. I mean, it makes sense, with medical facilities increasingly understaffed with healthcare providers now working far longer shifts. They suffer from fatigue, too, and quick diagnoses based on algorithms make sense when you have to care for so many. It's not just healthcare providers, it's also home caregivers who are increasingly in demand as underfunded, understaffed care facilities are proving to be inadequate for our aging population. All of which means more fatigue, this time being suffered by family who are caring for for seniors who themselves are likely battling fatigue from whatever illness they are fighting. It's what happens when you have a privatized for-profit healthcare system that prioritizes the bottom line in a society that focuses on every malady as if it is an individual concern and is disconnected from any larger social problems. We'll talk fatigue and how that term in itself is a pejorative in a few when we speak with historian of medicine and public health, Emily K. Abel author of Sick and Tired, and Intimate History of Fatigue. Emily is Professor Emerita of Public Health and Women's Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her most recent book prior to Sick and Tired was After the Cure, Untold Stories of Breast Cancer Survivors. She is also the author of two books on the history of tuberculosis in Los Angeles, Suffering in the Land of Sunshine, and Tuberculosis and the Politics of Exclusion, which won the 2007 Vesseltier Award of the Medical Section of the American Public Health Association for an outstanding book in the history of public health. Her work, Hearts of Wisdom, American Women Caring for Kin, 1850 to 1940, was named a choice outstanding academic book in the year 2000. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? I uh, don't want to get you or the show in trouble for doing a cultural imperialism. Okay. But when, I, when I was awake at three o'clock in the morning last night uh, on my phone reading about trail mix on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. I learned that in New Zealand and Australia, it's known as either scroggin or schmoggle. Oh, really? 
I like Scroggin and Schmoggle. I better. like trail mix. You guys can just start calling it trail mix. You don't need to keep calling it Scroggin or Schmoggle. I like Scroggin and Schmoggle. I like it when it's one word. It's like it's oh, when the Germans jam a whole bunch of words into one word. I like that kind of stuff. You mean how the Germans call trail mix student fodder? Oh, do they? It's a little. That's a little too German over there. I like that one. Too. Everyone listening, I know we have a, student fodder. I know we have a big international audience. Uh, <laughs> feel free to call it trail mix. It's just call it trail mix is just fine. Uh, now I've got a taste for student fodder. I was not here yesterday for the Monday morning show, the first hour of the Saturday morning show on WNUR, after going downstate to visit family for Christmas in October. We celebrated early, safely outdoors in order to avoid canceling the holidays altogether because we all seriously doubt the pandemic will allow us to celebrate indoors come December. And despite that side of the family having lots of atheists, the holiday season is a big deal to them. Well, something I et weren't quite right in whichever shellfish it may have been or the mere fact that we were celebrating the holidays. I may have overindulged when it comes to enjoying the holiday fair, not with alcohol. In fact, I drank far less than I usually do on a weekend. But man, the food, this part of my family, despite all them atheists, really does Christmas right. Which means I woke up early yesterday morning with extreme stomach pain maybe from lobster roll or shrimp cocktail maybe ceviche possibly from tibetan swedish or maybe even oaxacan cuisine also this weekend i got some insight into anti-vaxxers and those who are done with what they call covid 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 and i'll be sharing that with you following our guest but more importantly than any of that alex what's this week's question from hell this week's question from hell is, what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? <laughs> what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Todd in Forest Park, Illinois, who got a This Is Hell face mask by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. The This Is Hell face mask is the perfect way to convey how you feel during this pandemic. Thanks to Yohanitan, Yohanitan, sorry, uh, here in Chicago for picking up your black, picking up our black trucking cap. And thanks to Callista in Orlando, Florida, who got a t-shirt and a tote bag. Thanks, Todd in Forest Park, Yohanitan in Chicago, and Callista in Orlando for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Wednesday show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Emily on the chronic disability that is fatigue. Again, the question from hell is, what is one nice thing you can say about the ruling class? What is one nice thing you can say about the ruling class? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is... A grain ambulance. Oh, nice pronunciation. This, uh, you just have to be confident about it. It's probably not right. <laughs> the South African website Independent Online posted the story, Effective Ways to Remedy Hangover. 
The article explains that Digreen Ambulance, also known as Cream Soda, <laughs> is said to work wonders after a night of braying and boozing. Braying is braying? Yeah. Oh, gee, there goes my confidence. Uh, it means grilling. Uh, believers of Degreen Ambulance state that if you know it is going to be a big one, always make sure you have at least a two-liter bottle of the overly sweet fizzy green drink in the fridge. <laughs> Another website, Cape Town, etc., also suggests Degreen Ambulance and their story, Hangover Remedies That Many South Africans Swear By, Writer J.T. Davidson explains, apart from being a tasty household favorite, there is something about an ice-cold cream soda the morning after too many tequilas. Many South Africans swear by this one, noting that it settles nausea and gives an energy boost. Add a scoop of ice cream to go in a completely different direction and enjoy a soda float. So that makes this week's Hangover Cure, the South African cream soda, the green ambulance. Oh my God, cream soda after drinking. That sounds like... It's just going to make you throw up, and it sounds like most of our hangover cures are just going to make you throw up. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which streams live at 10 a.m. and is podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell shortly after on friday mornings but last week i was unavailable on friday so we did the patreon show on thursday october 14th which happens to be my and my girlfriend's anniversary of still not being married there's no legal contracts or licenses keeping us together but there are all sorts of discriminations that we face and Benefits that we do not receive because of our decision to not go through any of the matrimonial process. So last week I shared the upside and downside of not being married. I'm not saying you too should not be married. All I'm saying is it has worked for us for most of 34 freaking years. And I explained why on our most recent Patreon podcast. Also on Patreon, we shared an interview from our archives with one of last week's guests, an interview we did way back in 2009 with the Institute for Policy Studies, Chuck Collins. Chuck was on last week, you may remember, to discuss the power of concentrated dynastic family wealth in the United States, the political power it now has, and how those families threaten democracy. That conversation is important in light of the Pandora Papers, recently revealing how the wealthy and politically powerful are holding that wealth behind walls of security surrounding tax havens, shell companies, and offshore holdings. The conversation we shared on Patreon from 12 years ago is important because way back then, Chuck was offering a solution to a problem that the Biden administration and Congress are facing today, and that is, how do you pay for the much-needed mass improvement? of our infrastructure. Chuck told us that not only could we fund infrastructure, but we could do it while reeling in the power of Wall Street. The analysis Chuck had just co-authored on the subject is called Paying for a Strong Economy, Seven New Revenue Resource or Seven New Revenue Sources That Can Revitalize America and Reduce Financial Speculation. But the only way you can hear Chuck's solution to funding infrastructure and resisting financialization and my celebration of 34 years of unwedded bliss is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. And if you do, you will not only receive this is hell subvertising stickers in the mail so you too can subvert public advertising, but you also uh, get a secret code word you can use to get $5 off all of our stuff that you can find at this is hell.com when you click on support, including our trucker's cap, our winter beanie, t-shirt, tote bags, face masks, our stainless steel camping coffee mug and our this is hell guide to the 21st century featuring dozens of interviews from the first 20 years of the 2000s subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell and check out all of our stuff at this is hell.com when you click on support 
Coming up, why fatigue, why fatigue should be understood as energy impairment. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? What is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? And I'll give you a little insight into the anti-vaccine scene. <laughs> Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. The history of fatigue seems to be one of denial, denying that it is a disease and instead insisting that it must be the fault of whoever is suffering from the problem. It's just a matter of taking a nap or doing some exercise or eating better. But what if fatigue is far bigger than a temporary outcome of stress or burnout? What if, in fact, it's a chronic disability? Here to help us have a better understanding of fatigue and why that word in itself is a pejorative historian of medicine and public health. Emily K. Abel is author of Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue. Emily, welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you, and I'm happy to be here and happy to hear I'm not supposed to answer the question, which I can't. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. So you write that medicine finally has discovered fatigue, no longer viewing it as an inevitable feature of the approach of death. Palliative care specialists regard fatigue as a distinct disorder requiring medical intervention. What changed? Why is medicine only now discovering fatigue? I think one reason is that medicine looks primarily at things that it can measure. So it's also um, long overlooked pain. Pain is becoming, is slowly becoming under the purview of medicine and fatigue is lingering far behind. But increasingly physicians are realizing that one of the major problems that people with chronic disabilities face is fatigue. And it's hard to think about fatigue because everybody gets tired at some point. And if you get tired, people say, you know, if you say you have real fatigue, people say, oh, yes, I understand. I get tired, too. But the fatigue from certain conditions is really far more serious than what most people face day to day. And you write that recent articles about a host of diseases, including inflammatory bowel disease, chronic hepatitis C, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, psoriatic arthritis, type 1 diabetes, uh, postural, I knew I was going to get some of these wrong, orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and so on and so on and so on. According to the National Cancer Institute, fatigue following cancer treatment is not relieved by rest or sleep, can impair all aspects of life, and may last for years. So is fatigue then an outcome of recovering from any illness is fatigue a regular part of a uh, regular part of recovery and should be recognized as part of the ongoing healing process i think we have to stop thinking just about recovery and realizing that some conditions do linger some treatments or some treatments that are necessary also have side effects i mean we can look at long covid today when there are a number of symptoms that people describe, but fatigue seems to be one of the most important. And so, in, and a lot of people are saying, maybe we, if we're looking at long COVID, maybe we shouldn't just be looking at who recovers. We should try to think about what recovery means and why we only focus on recovery and don't think about all the people who live with lasting conditions. 
that's really, really interesting insight. You write, when I finished six months of breast cancer therapy, including surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation in 1993, the situation was very different when I complained about the overwhelming fatigue that persisted months and then years after the end of treatment. Doctors prescribed psychotherapy, explaining that patients commonly suffered from depression after cancer. Is fatigue more likely to cause depression or is depression more likely to cause fatigue? Well, who knows, really? And the conditions are very similar. Um, and one problem, another, another of the many problems people with fatigue have is that people assume that they must be depressed. And as I said, they are sent to psychotherapists when fatigue it can be a really serious physical condition. Of course, we can never really separate the phys physical and the mental, as we now know. But we also have to consider how depressing it is to be fatigued for long periods of time. So depression can often be an outcome of fatigue rather than the cause. So was fatigue not recognized by medicine because in the past it was seen or understood as an excuse, if not laziness? I think partly, and also it has been recognized in various ways, but um, in very different ways from the way it is now. I mean, we look back to the 19th century and there was neurasthenia, and then the primary uh, symptom that people reported was fatigue. We now don't have that diagnosis. Um, people also in the early 20th century were looking at something called industrial fatigue, which was something that was supposed to afflict working class people. So it's not that it's been ignored completely, but it's been defined in various in various different ways. And you write that fatigue often connotes idleness, which early church fathers condemned as one of the seven deadly sins and today still is widely considered a moral failing. So. Was fatigue seen as a choice that a person would make? I, I think so. Um, in, in certain times, certainly not with industrial fatigue, which actually was one of the few times when this country focused on workers' hours and, um, you know, how many days they worked. But um, certainly one problem that people have with fatigue is that we do condemn what we consider idleness. We see it as a choice and we measure people's worth through their productivity. What's the output compared to the input and people with fatigue really do seem to lose some kind of moral standing in society. But you also point out that we also hear about um, disaster fatigue, culture wars fatigue, pink ribbon fatigue, compassion fatigue, information fatigue, just to name a few. So was fatigue viewed as a kind of, I don't know, cynical boredom, disrespectful, condescending, or even uh, a disorder of elitists? You know, I think what you're pointing out is that fatigue is considered, is defined in so many different ways. And yes, right now we're hearing um, about COVID fatigue, pandemic fatigue, vaccination fatigue, so that it really means um, people, yes, people use it as saying, there's just too much emphasis on this. I'm tired of this. Let's go on to some other subject. It really means jaded in, in those circumstances. So do you, it, does that suggest that it's uh, just an unpleasant personality trait? Yes, I think that's one problem that people with fatigue, if they say they are fatigued, people say, oh, you're idle. That's one way of condemning them. Another way is to say, oh, you're just like 
um, all those people who talk about fatigue as something that's trivial, as in, I'm tired of COVID, I'm tired of the pandemic, and I'm tired not just of the vaccine, but of the anti-vaxxers. You write that when studying fatigue, a number of themes repeatedly emerged. The first was the denigration of subjective knowledge, or more precisely, embodied knowledge, which derives from people's perceptions of their own bodies. Is this the kind of knowledge we all have that may be diagnosed as it's all in your head? Absolutely. Absolutely. For many years, and I would say it's still the case, people who bring fatigue as a symptom to doctors are told, this is all in your head, you know, this is psychological, and it's not considered important. I think doctors do have to pay more attention to the symptoms that patients bring to them and try to understand them, even if they can't be measured. And it's a problem we're seeing recurring with long COVID, when many people who suffer from that condition say they they bring, they they present the doctor with those symptoms and the doctors can't take them seriously or don't take them seriously because the doctors don't know how to either measure it or explain it. So what can be the impact on diagnoses when prioritizing the presumably objective information derived from medical devices, from medical technology like stethoscopes, over the more assumed subjective evidence given by the patient themselves? What can be the impact on diagnoses? Well, obviously, many important diagnoses are overlooked, and people also then start to blame themselves. Other people blame them. They, If they can't work, they are considered morally you know, corrupt or idle or something terrible. Well, in fact, they have a condition. You know, doctors can't diagnose everything. And perhaps that we we sometimes say, well, there's no medical explanation, therefore it must be psychological. But perhaps there's no medical explanation now, and there might be later, or perhaps there never will be a medical explanation, something that doctors can measure, but it still is very important to the patient and should be taken seriously. You write that Laura Hillenbrand, the author of Seabiscuit, explains how the absence of medical legitimation can weaken support networks. Hillenbrand was in college when chronic fatigue struck, and she was forced to return to her parents' house for care. Much later, her sister acknowledged she didn't get the family support she should have. That's one thing I still feel bad about, her sister says. It took years, unfortunately, to find out how bad it was for a long time. We just expected she'd get better and go back to college. Then it became clear she wasn't getting better. Her boyfriend stuck with her, but his friends urged him to move on. Most of her friends disappeared. So is medical care, as well as your own network of family and friends, only supportive of those suffering with ailments measurable by devices and thus confirmed as diseases by the medical profession? Do both doctors, as well as family and friends, abandon those with diseases like fatigue that cannot be measured? I don't want to say all doctors or the entire medical profession, but certainly there is a strong bias toward only recognizing conditions that the doctors can measure and or the doctors can see in some way. And fatigue is invisible. It can't be measured, at least by current methods. And yes, it is ignored or it is also denigrated both by many physicians as well as informal supporters. 
So on fatigue, you also mentioned the cultural emphasis on productivity. As you were saying earlier, productivity refers to the ratio of outputs, the monetary outputs, the monetary value of goods and services to inputs, technically or typically defined as the hours worked. Because our society links personal worth to the amount individuals produce, people lose respect and social legitimacy when fatigue constrains their ability to work. So what role then does the medical profession play in prioritizing our worth, our value as productive workers over everything else? Yes, I think we do that in many ways. It's not only the medical profession that does that, but because people with conditions of fatigue are not able to bring medical excuses to employers, they are seen as, you know, people who are not morally upright. And um, as as the, your example shows, um, family, friends, as well as employers sort of disregard somebody who has a condition like that and that doctors will not or cannot explain. And- it's very hard to say to somebody, I can't work because I have fatigue. The answer is always, well, we're all fatigued. As you said in the introduction, Um, everybody's talking about fatigue at the moment because we're all tired from all the stresses that the pandemic has placed on us. But some people do have conditions that are far more severe than the common ones. So on the pandemic and, uh, you know, this idea of how modern science can cure everything, another theme of your book is the dominance of triumphant narratives. And you write, when I finished cancer treatment, I assumed my troubles were over. Doctors, family members, and friends reassured me. I read scores of breast cancer recovery narratives. The insistence on recovery narratives reflects two strands in American culture. One is the belief that modern medicine has a cure for every affliction, that even the most grievous illnesses and injuries can end happily. The other is the conviction that with enough grit, hard work, and determination, individuals can overcome any adversity. First, on the narrative of modern science can cure everything. What role does that play in preparedness for pandemics like the one we're currently experiencing? Do we not take necessary precautions because we believe science will eventually save us? I don't think that we, I, I think we are taking, uh, I don't think that the anti-vaxxers or people who are Um, against vaccinations or mandates or saying that it's not important. Um, I I think what we're we're looking at now is that there are many people who don't recover and those people are not taken seriously. In fact, they've they've had to band together. Many people, or a surprising number of people are saying that their symptoms have lingered more than two months. And so we're just looking at hospitalizations and deaths, and we also should be looking at all of the people who continue to have symptoms that are serious, some of which can't be measured, but which seriously impact their lives. As for the conviction that uh, with enough grit, hard work, and determination, individuals can overcome any adversity, does this individualize the recovery, leaving it up to you that if you win the fight, you win, but if you lose the fight, you're a loser. Do, do those who are suffering feel societal pressure to overcome their disease? Oh, absolutely. You know, you can go back to polio when, um, when the whole campaign uh, to raise money for polio in the 1950s always showed uh, young people who had recovered. There was a, a poster boy named Daniel, and first he was depicted as being in 
his bed, um, looking wanly at whoever was looking at him. And later he's looking briskly down the street, you know, walking briskly down the street without even crutches. Um, and the moral that people were supposed to draw from that was, look, he had enough determination, he could get better. In fact, that particular poster boy, Daniel, never did recover. And he certainly didn't walk as fast as or as easily as he was as as he was depicted, and so we really um, we really you know put such a positive spin on people who do recover as if that is a moral characteristic. It's you know it's really luck in a lot of cases, and we ignore disabilities, which is an increasingly important subject. Does this lead to the belief that positive thinking is essential to recovery? Well, absolutely. Yes. People have always told, you know, just think better. Just um, you, you can almost will yourself into recovery. Just assume that you will get better. And none of this. I mean, this obviously sometimes this can help, but it is not by any means a cure. So what would have what would you have rather had someone say to you than you can do this, you can beat this cancer as a motivational speaker or cheerleader would? What would you rather have had somebody say to you other than you can beat this? Well, there are two different things. First of all, I, it was important. I, I, I can't say I beat cancer, but cancer was I certainly have been in remission for a long time. So overcoming cancer is certainly something that I believe I, I have done. I hope I'm not proved wrong. But what is um, what I wanted people to acknowledge was that some of the after effects, some of the side effects of treatment had caused serious and lingering problems that affected my life in serious ways. And I didn't want people just to say, oh, well, you will get better or assume you will get better or be happy or positive or whatever. I wanted them to understand what what the impact of that condition was on my life overall. You write that also perhaps nothing so clearly refutes the notion that fatigue is a trivial complaint as the catalog of the measures people have taken to combat it. At the same time, the widespread availability of remedies cements the belief that individuals easily can triumph over even the most serious forms of fatigue on their own by taking naps, adopting a more active lifestyle, ingesting any one of a number of energy-enhancing substances. So if there is an entire industry behind fighting fatigue... What explains why medical science did not view it as a disease? If people are suffering from any ailment, why would the medical profession insist they are not or that the ailment is not worth treating by medicine? Well, again, I think it is because medicine cannot cannot um, cannot measure it, cannot see it. It's completely invisible. And therefore, doctors assume it is not important. And they also, and again, I'm not implicating every doctor, but many doctors don't really listen to what's happening in patients' lives. They they do examinations, they, they measure certain things, but they aren't asking patients, so what is your daily life like? How is this impacting your association with your friends or your work life or your ability to be a parent or any any one of a number of other things. 
Why don't they ask those bigger social problems? Why don't they ask you? I mean, you know, I've yet to have a doctor in my entire life ever ask me what my daily life is like. I've never had that happen. Why do you think that those kind of social problems are not addressed by medical professionals? Well, I think the answer is in really what what you said in the introduction or the producer said in the introduction, the kind of medicine we have, which is profits over people. And um, one, one, one result of that is that doctors are extremely rushed now. I have a lovely family practice physician. I, I sort of think he would like to ask me about my life. But, um, and, and he puts in a, one question or another just to show his concern. But really, he has to do an examination in five minutes. He has no time to ask me anything, any, anything really seriously about my life. We sort of, um, you know, trade a little information about grandchildren, and that's about it. So you also uh, point out that you were raised during what you called the psychosomatic movement, which I didn't even know existed. I didn't realize that there was a movement. To what degree do you think that that still persists today? Is there a lingering legacy of the psychosomatic movement, or is it still active today, a movement that insists your problems are all in your head unless the medical profession confirms it? I'd say two things. One is that there is something called psychosomatic medicine. It is important in diagnosis. It is important to recognize that some conditions are psychosomatic. They derive from psychological problems. And that does not mean that the suffering is any less, but that um, looking at the underlying psychological problems can be important. The problem is that when doctors just assume that any condition they cannot diagnose is therefore psychological. Of course, to say something is psychological should not mean that that's something terrible. But in our society, we think that mental illness, we we disparage mental illness and we have few um, we have few services for people who have mental conditions. And that is another serious problem. We are speaking with historian of medicine and public health, Emily K. Abel, author of the wonderful book, Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue. You point out that we tend to assume we live in a time of unprecedented and overwhelming social and technological change. In the late 19th century, similar anxieties were provoked by the advent of telephones, telegraphs, trains, and what contemporaries viewed as the accelerating pace of life in rapidly growing cities and the tendency toward busyness and overwork. Is fatigue the result of technology and technologies are meant to make society work harder and become more productive? Is that why technology leads to fatigue because technology is meant to make us more productive? I'm not sure. I I was really looking at a kind of chronic fatigue that results from medical conditions. I think that there is an emphasis on busyness and a lot of people are saying, well, what you need, what we need now is more leisure. We should put more emphasis on leisure. We and there are so many, um, so many people who are looking at the emphasis on productivity and and. But remember, this is this really only focuses on people at the top of the occupational hierarchy, who can choose. In well, in some in some cases, are able to choose how busy they are. Most people or most workers 
um, have have no. The, well, well, let me just say that the emphasis is not on the workers who work two to three jobs in order to make ends meet. Those workers are are really far more. Far, far more likely to become fatigued and to become seriously ill. And you write most discussions of fatigue at the turn of the 20th century began with neurasthenia, from a Greek word meaning nervous exhaustion, the diagnosis popularized by neurologist George M. Beard in 1869. And you write how Beard claimed that neurasthenia uh, primarily affected the highest social orders, as you were just saying, whites, Protestants, and members of the middle and upper classes, people whose natures were too sensitive to withstand the pressures of a rapidly modernizing and industrializing society. The disease was developed, fostered, and perpetuated, Beard wrote, with the progress of civilization, with the advance of advance of culture and refinement and the corresponding preponderance of labor of the brain over that of the muscles. As a result, it is oftener, he wrote, met within cities than in the country, is more marked and more frequent at the desk, the pulpit, and the counting room than in the shop or on the farm. How much did our understanding of fatigue then result in stereotypes of people residing in urban and rural areas as part of the legacy of the study of fatigue are stereotypes of people who live in urban as opposed to rural areas? Yes, I think I think that was an issue. But even more, it was it was um, it, it, neurasthenia became a condition that many people wanted to have because it seemed to prove that they were superior in some ways. I did a um, one of the books I wrote was about a a journalist in Los Angeles at the turn of the twentieth century who had tuberculosis, and because con- tuberculosis was assumed to be associated with um, poor people and immigrants, he insisted that he had neurasthenia, even as his symptoms increasingly showed that he was suffering from tuberculosis. But as long as he could say he had neurasthenia, he could separate himself from the groups he condemned. Yeah, I saw that part in the book, and I thought that was very that was fascinating. You write that William James advocated in opposition to the gospel of work in his essay, The Gospel of Relaxation. And you cite that essay where James argues that the cause of many breakdowns lay in, quote, those absurd feelings of hurry and having no time and that breathlessness and tension and that anxiety of feature and that solicitude for results and the lack of inner harmony and ease which too often accompany work lives. You had... Their uh, their words resemble those of present day critics of the frenetic pace of the business world. So in 2019, we spoke with Jenny O'Dell, author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Has society advocated for working less and having less of a working life since there have been working lives? Well, I can't go back to the beginning of working lives, but um I think, and society as a whole has been very different, has, you know, there's so many parts to society, and there's so many different groups in society, so that there has, there has been relatively little concern with the kinds of working hours that working people have. In fact, as I said, and as we all know, some workers are, are, are working two and three three jobs to make ends meet, to be able to support their families. These aren't the people who are being told to slow down, enjoy leisure, see leisure as the new productivity. Um, Certainly there is occasionally and perhaps growing concern with them, 
but there isn't the same emphasis or, or they aren't being told the way managers, professionals, CEOs are being told that it's important for them to slow down, to enjoy leisure, and this will in fact make them more productive. Is fatigue the result of employers viewing workers as nothing more than machines to produce? Is fatigue the result of dehumanizing workers? Well, it certainly was seen that way at the, in the late 19th century by progressive reformers and by trade unions leaders. Um, I think fatigue is so complicated that we can't say it's just a function of, of employers seeing, uh, seeing employees as, as machines. Um, but certainly there isn't a lot of attention given to the employment conditions of most workers. And you quote historians Philip S. Foner and David R. Rodiger, uh, writing that the length of the work days traditionally had been the central issue raised by the American labor movement during its most dynamic periods of organization. It was the prime demand in the class conflicts that spawned America's first industrial strike, its first citywide trade union councils, its first labor party, its first general strikes, its first organization that united skilled and unskilled workers, its first strike by females, and its first attempts at regional and national labor organization. So is the 40-year decline of the U.S. labor movement an assault not, not only on worker organizing, but an assault that is causing increasing fatigue? I would say that, obviously, of one kind of fatigue, of the kind of fatigue that workers have at the end of the day, um, and which leads to all sorts of um, difficult chronic conditions. So. It, it is really, I mean, I, I, I think it's striking that once this was the central concern and um, it no longer is or it faded from, uh, from progressive reformers' consciousness for so long. You mentioned Josephine Clara Goldmark's landmark book, Fatigue and Efficiency, appeared in 1912. Writing during a period that glorified science, Goldmark explained that she drew, quote, upon the scientific study of fatigue, one of the most modern inquiries of physiological, chemical, and psychological science for aid in the practical problem of reducing the long working day in industry. You write that uh, physiology was by far the uh, most important. Physiologists gravitated to the study of industrial fatigue in part because they viewed it as a way to increase the status of their field. The book opened with a summary of laboratory research on animal muscles demonstrating that fatigue resulted from toxins in the body. And you cite Goldmark writing, a tired person is literally and actually a poisoned person, poisoned by our own waste products. Did physiology then increase its scientific status by in any way obfuscating the more, the larger social roles of, uh, that lead to fatigue? I wouldn't say physiology did. I think more it was when, um, when psychology became more important. And instead of looking at the physical effects of long working hours on workers' bodies, which actually physiologists were doing, but we're looking at um, at workers' mental state, at their ability, to, their, their willingness to work. That, I think, is what changed attitudes. So, so I think physiologists, in fact, were really looking at the impact of long working hours on workers' bodies. 
And as you were pointing out earlier, that progressives, their focus seemed to be on that lack of productivity that uh, fatigue was causing. Fatigue is bad because it leads to less productivity. But what happens to your understanding of fatigue when all of the focus is on worker productivity? Absolutely. And look at, I mean, um, the book you mentioned, Fatigue and Efficiency, she, um, the author was really quite, you, you know, um, wrote quite a stunning book. But again, her, the book was very much part of the era when they were looking at workers in terms of efficiency. And she was saying when workers are, are exhausted or tired at the end of the day, they are less productive. So again, she had those, um, those biases that were very predominant at the time. You also mentioned this fatigue lab. You say the researchers concluded that fatigue rarely occurred among industrial workers and that managers thus could safely disregard the issue. You write how a, a book by uh, Maya, which I'm losing the title of right here, oh, 1933 book, Human Problems in an Industrial Civilization, describing the Hawthorne experiments, opened with a discussion of that conclusion. By the time the Fatigue Laboratory closed in 1947. The struggle for shorter hours had faltered. A key event was the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938. Rather than restricting night work, the law created the right to time and a half overtime pay, effectively ending the campaign to reduce hours. After that, both the number of hours Americans worked each week and the number of weeks they worked each year began to rise. So was the purpose of this lab a partnership between the Harvard Business and Medical Schools? Was the purpose to find a justification legitimation to not reduce work hours in order to address fatigue, that work hours and fatigue were not linked? Was that their intent? I wouldn't say it was their intent. It certainly was what they did. Um, it's imp- I think it is important, as you said, that it was, it was um, a joint enterprise of the Harvard Business School and the, um, and, and the medical school. At the same time, I think people may be really stunned to understand that there was something called the fatigue laboratory at Harvard in the early 20th century. But yes, the impact was to say that, uh, or the um, the the its studies did seem to say that um, it wasn't really important how long workers or, or what kind of employment conditions workers had. It was much more important what their psychological state was and their willingness to continue to keep working despite any conditions. And you write that the explosion of interest in stress after World War II transformed the discourse about fatigue. The two concepts are closely related. Stress often is indicted as the major cause of fatigue. Fatigue frequently appears in a list of the leading symptoms of stress. But once stress became the catchword of the day, Fatigue itself moved from the center to the periphery of concern. So our concerns about stress, yet another distraction from the causes of fatigue and from fatigue more generally, just as physiologists, behavioral scientists, and those working on human relations at the Harvard Business and Medical Schools, fatigue labs had all done, is stress a distraction from fatigue? I wouldn't say it's a distraction. I certainly, I think the problem is we don't know exactly what, what stress is, and the solutions are all seen as um, as personal. In order to overcome fatigue, pe- I'm sorry. In order to overcome stress, people are encouraged to to um, look at stress management techniques, which means some of the things you mentioned before: having a good 
attitude, um, a positive attitude. Um, and it's, it's inclined us to look much more at individual solutions than at social and economic ones. And let's get to those social and economic ones. You write the massive stress management and burnout prevention industry is directed solely at individuals. As early as 1981, the Institute of Medicine called attention to the wide range of best-selling books that assert that people can avoid developing hypertension, heart attacks, depression, anxiety, and many other disorders by changing their lifestyles in ways that reduce stress. Today's stress reduction is a multi-billion dollar enterprise, including not only books, but also advice columns and mass market magazines, personal coaching, workshops, audiovisual products, and lectures. How much of a threat to the stress management industry would it be if society shifted from a focus on individual problems perceived to cause fatigue to recognizing the social problems causing fatigue? How much of a threat would that be to the stress management industry? Well, obviously, it would be an enormous threat because the self-management industry is trying to convince people that the that the problems are all ones that they can um, solve on their own, and uh, really distract us from looking at some of the larger forces. I wouldn't, you know, some of the stress management techniques have been enormously helpful to many people on a personal level, but they um, they also encourage us not to look at broader forces that are affecting our lives. <clears throat> you also write that according to a Harris poll conducted by the American Psychological Association, 61% of American adults view work as the major source of stress. Although low pay is the primary cause, long hours and heavy workloads are also important factors. In her 1992 book, The Overworked American Economist, Juliet B. Shore estimated that the average American puts in 163 more hours a year than she or he had in 1973. Today, American work Americans work 14% more hours than Europeans, at least in part because the United States lags far behind in providing basic job protections. How much more of a phenomenon is stress, burnout, and fatigue in the United States than elsewhere? How much worse are our working lives than in nations with relatively similar economies? I don't think that that, 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 that has been measured. It would be really difficult to do so, but I think we certainly can look at countries that have much better job protections and say that those really are protections um, that are extremely important to most people's lives and that our society really lacks and that the stress management industry does nothing to alleviate. So are we in denial about the social problems related to overwork that causes our fatigue that we all seemingly suffer from? And if so, why? Well, I wouldn't say we are in denial. I would say um, that we are, uh, this society in, is inclined to look at individual solutions, and that is what we've been doing for a long time. And look how difficult it is to pass Biden's, you know, commonplace measures. Um, we really are. I hate to say the American people of our society, but America lacks very far behind most European countries in terms of job protections. And that really does make, um, does impair the health of many workers. 
you write that commentators point to three factors to explain the long hours Americans devote to their jobs. One is workplace culture. You then point to Bob Posen, a former president of Fidelity Management and now an advocate for reducing hours at work, noting time becomes an easy metric to measure how productive someone is, even though it doesn't have any necessary connection to what they achieve. And I just found that interesting when it comes to measuring, just like the medical technology that cannot measure fatigue is if time is not linked to achievement, then why do we have such long work hours? Well, I think that that's, and, and remember long work hours, you, I'm, you, you know, there are many different groups in society. The um, long work hours, what Posner was looking at was the long work hours of um, of people at the top of the occupational hierarchy who are in some sense, um, the culture encourages them to work harder and harder. And, um, but really the, most of the problem is with um, low paid workers who, as I said, are forced to work two and sometimes three jobs a day that's where the real problem lies. And you quote a Gold, Goldman Sachs executive commenting, today technology means that we're all available 24-7. And because everyone demands instant gratification and instant connectivity, there are no boundaries, no breaks. Moreover, financial markets around the world are always open. So how much worse is fatigue globally now that we are always all on call? Do smartphones lead to increasing fatigue? I, are you? I'm, I'm, I think you're asking me if if this is leading to more fatigue. But I was trying to point out that this is what people are. This is how people are explaining it, and um, this is a this is very different from the kind of fatigue that people have with very serious chronic conditions. Well, let's talk about fatigue just in a different way. How much of a public safety issue are concerns around fatigue? More and more people are focusing on that. There are um, certainly with physicians, there were there have been movements to cut down on residents' working hours because it was assumed that their um, that the long hours contributed to the kinds of mistakes they make. And then countering that was another movement which said, no, no, residents have to be there for a long time so that they can see the whole course of of an illness, and there have been a, you know, there have been studies that have shown that fatigue can also uh, has been responsible for uh, traffic accidents, for um, and for many of the major disasters that uh, that have occurred. That workplace fatigue was uh, a, a major contributing factor. And you write that honoring embodied knowledge remains essential in medicine, especially as doctors increasingly reduce patients to data gleaned from CAT scans, MRI, X-rays, and biopsies. The rise of evidence-based medicine, useful though it is, has compounded the problem. Watching medical students, Harvard Medical School's Jerome Groupman writes, I, their algorithms, and then invokes statistics from recent studies, concluded that the new generation of doctors was being conditioned to function like a well-programmed computer that operates within a strict binary framework. Is medicine becoming increasingly guided by algorithms, and is this related to healthcare being privatized in the United States and being profit-oriented? 
Yes, I think definitely it is. It has to do also with the fact that doctors have so little time. You know, there are more and more medical humanities programs that are trying to teach doctors um, to look at the whole patient, to listen more closely to patients, to take their whole lives into consideration. And these are, these are really wonderful, but they are counteracted by um, the time constraints that doctors are working under, which really encourage them only to look at, at um, you know, a, a kind of objective measures and not to listen to, to patient stories. But you also talk about how uh, medicine has a humility problem. And you write, Jennifer Brea, the founder of Hashtag Me Action, argues that doctors should display humility not only by listening to patient testimony, but also by acknowledging the limits of medical knowledge. And you then quote Brea writing, I don't know is a beautiful thing. I don't know is where discovery starts. If we can approach the great vastness of all that we do not know, then rather than fear uncertainty, maybe we can greet it with a sense of wonder. So do algorithms insist that the physician does know and there is no reason to continue pursuing any investigation or new discovery? Yes, and I think that Dre was also speaking to a larger problem, which is that doctors think that they have to have the answer to everything, and they don't. You know, there are medi- as I said, there are many conditions for which there is no medical explanation, at least at the moment, and perhaps there never will be. But, um, and I think it's important for doctors to say, you know, I don't know um, that, that and, and not just to assume that if they don't know that the problem is psychological and that the patient therefore can take care of it on his or her own. And you point out that in a world that places a high premium on productivity, fatigue diminishes personal worth, and rest serves solely as an opportunity for recuperation. These issues play out differently for workers at opposite ends of the occupational hierarchy. So do we lose personal worth or value when something as intimate as our own rest is determined to be productive for others? I'm not sure we we lose... A... <laughs> I'm not sure we lose social worth, but I think there's a strong pressure on people to feel that they are accomplishing something when they are at rest. And in fact, um, some of the new slogans are encouraging people to do that by saying, leisure is a new productivity. In other words, if you take more leisure, then you can be more productive instead of saying, you know, leisure is important because you can have a more fulfilled life. You may work more on your social relationships, on on art, or any of a number of other things, but we look so much at productivity as the sole criterion. And you point out that the Chronic Illness Inclusion Project, a research project led by people with disabilities in Britain, has directed new attention to fatigue, or what they call energy impairment. The group argues that because energy impairment is the most common and restrictive aspect of various chronic diseases, it should be added to the categories governments use in surveys on disability. The researchers reject the category stamina, breathing, fatigue recommended by the World Health Organization on two grounds. Both fatigue and lack of stamina have pejorative connotations, and most people view fatigue as an acute problem, not a chronic one. The evidence in the book supports both, in this book, in your writing, supports both arguments. Fatigue is a pejorative for a chronic disability. How could one be diagnosed as having the chronic disability of energy impairment? How much would such a diagnosis be based on the subjective input of the person's suffering? 
Definitely would have to, it would mean listening more to patients. I should point out that the group I was referring to is in Britain. I find it really encouraging because it is looking, it is highlighting the importance of fatigue as a common condition, as, as what really unites so many, so many different chronic conditions or what, and what you, what, what is so prevalent in terms of disabilities. I think it's a wonderful way of looking at, at many chronic diseases and disabilities. One last question for you, Emily. We have been speaking with historian of medicine and public health, Emily K. Abel, author of Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue. I found this book absolutely fascinating, and you should check it out as well. Again, Emily K. Abel, that's A-B-E-L, Sick and Tired, An Intimate History of Fatigue. One last question for you, Emily, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, our final question is what we call... The question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response, but I think this one's going to be pretty easy. Due to the way our current working lives are structured here in the U.S., couldn't everyone claim they're suffering from energy impairment? Is everybody in the United States disabled by our working lives? (laughs) That's a good question. What if I leave it with you to answer? Um, I, I... I think the problem with with saying that is then that we lose sight of the people who really um, for for whom fatigue is a serious chronic condition that impairs their lives and that can't easily be resolved. Um, Some people's fatigue can be resolved by a night's sleep. Other people's can't. And I think we have to look at the difference between commonplace fatigue or the kind of fatigue we have when we say, oh, I'm so tired, and the kind of fatigue that um, people with certain uh, long-term conditions really suffer from. Emily, thank you so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed your writing. It's an exceptional book, and it didn't make me fatigued, which was great. So thank (laughs) thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Emily K. Abel on the chronic disability that is energy impairment, if that made you angry, sad, anxious, fatigued, or you were in some way enlightened, deprogramming yourself from a previously held belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell, Show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to you for your support. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? What is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? Fabio L. says, less filling tastes great. Bradley R. says, my, what big teeth you have. Barrett M. says, the medical dental vision package is actually quite decent. John W. says, they do look like they would tessellate in an aesthetically pleasing fashion. What's one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? Porky B. says, they do have beautiful large sons and daughters. Gregory K. says, four out of five dentists surveyed recommend the global ruling class for their patients who choose a ruling class. Kim G says, Amply supply of scandal, uh, ample supply of scandalous subject matter for all the podcasts. Dan O says, delicious. Chris H says, good compost. A couple more. What's a nice thing you could say about the global ruling class? Jack W says, 
There are biological time clocks whose winding down could be ex expedited in particular ways. In Minecraft, I would add. <laughs> Nick A says, lots of them have faces. Adam A says, they'll make great kindling for a burning planet. And Ronald A says, they'll die just like everyone. Now, I'm not suggesting that you use human beings as compost, Alex, but would they make good compost? You are somebody who gardens. Uh, you'd probably have to use some sort of like wireframe thing to get the bones out because that'd be bad in your uh, garden bed. <laughs> I see. All right. I think the flesh would probably break down. I'm glad that you were able to respond to that so quickly. A anytime you start learning about compost, like home composting, it always gets into composting your own manure by like the fourth paragraph of whatever's <laughs> going on. And I have not read further down, but I'm sure decomposing bodies is somewhere in there. It's a, <laughs> it's a dark world over there. We'll have more of your answers to the end of tomorrow's show. My neighbor has been composting for years in that he put a whole bunch of waste products in a plastic tub, put it in our gangway, and hasn't done anything with it since. So now it's a home for rats. Again, this question from hell this week is, what is one nice thing you can say about the ru global ruling class? What is one nice thing you can say about the global ruling class? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us, you can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. October 18th, 1356, 665 years ago this week, the area on the frontier between Switzerland and Germany, along the River Rhine, was rocked by the most intense earthquake ever recorded in Europe, north of the Alps. It came as a series of powerful shocks beginning in the early evening and continuing through the night. The quake caused destruction across a wide swath of Europe, from Paris to Prague. Nice alliteration. But the city of Basel in Switzerland got the worst of it. The central city was completely destroyed. Churches and castles came tumbling down. And since most homes and other buildings were built of wood and lit by open flame candles and oil lamps, the quake was followed by massive fires. At least 300 people were killed, and aftershocks from the quake continued for another year. Ever since then, the area around Basel has periodically been hit by minor earthquakes of far less intensity. Isn't that where the World Economic Forum happens? Because I'd really like to have another earthquake in Basel that was very timed to the World Economic Forum. Meanwhile, just a few miles north in the town of Fessenheim, across the French border, a major nuclear power plant was built and brought online in the 70s. But after several decades of protest, that facility, also constructed directly above a major aquifer, was finally decommissioned last year. Now, you may have noticed that the only comment I had was on the World Economic Forum. Most of my snarky comments were just dropped out of that whole rotten history. Sure, I could have been cruel and wished that another earthquake would hit Switzerland and completely devastate the global center of so much hinky business, but why hope for suffering, even though I am kind of hoping for it during the World Economic Forum? Yes, I could ask who the criminal was who decided to put a nuclear reactor near the site of an earthqu er, earthquake above an aquifer. But it's really no single person's fault, as it is the system, a structural problem. So other than that, I got nothing. In Rotten History, October 18th, 1933, 88 years ago this week, a mob, mob of about 2,000 white people ooh, ooh, perpetrated the last known lynching in the state of Maryland. 23-year-old mentally disabled 
African-American labor named George Armwood was accused of assaulting a 79-year-old white woman who also happened to be the mother of a local cop. And on their last lynching, Maryland apparently wanted to check all of the lynching boxes, young mentally disabled black man who allegedly did something to a white woman. Armwood had been arrested and beaten by police who then took him to three different jails within hours in an attempt to keep him away from growing crowds of angry white people who wanted to get their hands on him because apparently the police didn't want to share their racist violence with anyone. Finally, at the last jail in the town of Princess Anne, Maryland, a county judge appeared, appealed to the crowd for order. The crowd ignored him and the police resorted to tear gas, but that was not enough to keep the white mob from breaking into the jail with two wooden battering rams, knocking a police captain unconscious and overpowering the jailkeeper, you know, law and order types. When they found Armwood hiding under the bed in his cell, they dragged him outside, beat and stabbed him and threw him into a truck. They took him out to a farm and hanged him, then dragged his body over the road all the way back into town. They hung the corpse from a telephone pole and set it on fire, letting it burn as they danced around it in the streets. In the days that followed, police tried to identify perpetrators of the lynching, but found that white residents of the area would not cooperate. I guess snitches got stitches. And when the state attorney general ordered the arrests of eight white suspects, the locals rioted, but... Four men were finally indicted, only to be acquitted by an all-white jury, of course. And absolutely none of that is surprising, after so much rotten history, as I've read here on This Is Hell. Who knew the United States has a long history of deadly racialized violence, of which nobody has ever was ever held to account, and justice was never served? Oh yeah, everybody. Finally, in rotten history, October 23rd, 1989, 32 years ago, this Saturday... A series of powerful explosions ripped through a chemical plant of the Phillips Petroleum Company in Pasadena, Texas, near the port of Houston. The disaster began inside a factory that made petroleum-based polyethylene plastic for use in milk and juice bottles and other food containers. Imagine the stench that gave off. The cause was human error during routine maintenance, which to me always sounds like crappy infrastructure, so vulnerable to causing a disaster that one human can do it. A pressure valve used to control the flow of an extremely flammable gas was normally powered by two compressed air hoses. One hose opened the valve and the other closed it. Unfortunately, the two hoses looked identical and a maintenance worker reconnected them wrong so that the gas valve was later thrown open when it was supposed to be closed, supporting my point that the problem was not human error but the two air hoses looking alike. The flammable gas ignited and set off a chain reaction of explosions that measured 3.5 on the Richter scale and destroyed most of the plant's own firefighting equipment. Eeks. Fire departments from around the Houston area were called in to put down the blaze. 23 people were killed and more than 300 were injured. And that's rotten history. And this is Hell. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Now we got writer Panache Chigumadze on to talk about her article, The Cry of Black Worldlessness for Africa as a Country. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin looks back at some predictions. 
We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and a Patreon podcast on Fridays. However, we are very flexible, and if you can do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well, and we actually pay our board ops. Not much, but it's something. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Hey, we'll show you how to do everything, too. You don't need to have any prior knowledge about uh, board operation. Uh, you'll get the hang of it. I can do it. It's not that hard. <laughs> it's a great thing to learn, though. This past weekend, I visited family that is very kind, very generous, very loving, and according to emails we've received, very, very opposed to the vaccine. They have been trying to convince us to be the same, despite the fa- fact that we've all been vaccinated twice, so we don't really understand how we can get the vaccine out of our system at this point. Their most recent concern is us taking any booster, which have not yet been approved of anyway, so I'm really not too sure why they have so much concern of something that isn't necessarily going to happen. Again, kind, generous, loving people, but I was so afraid we were facing a weekend of trying to be convinced that the coronavirus pandemic is fake news. Don't get me wrong. They are not Trump supporters. They're not Trumpers. They, In fact, they were huge believers, a little bit too much, in Russiagate, which may have been their gateway drug leading to their anti-vax stance. I have no idea. And the reason I have no idea is, thankfully, it never came up this weekend. Instead, they were just their kind, generous, loving selves, and it was fantastic to see them outdoors and socially distanced. That said, I did get a report from another member of the family and their branch of our extended family's reaction to the virus. Apparently, there's lots of anti-vaxxers out on that familial limb. We were told that the majority of them believe they had COVID-19 early on in 2020. It was just a really bad cold, nothing bad, and they all overcame it. They overcame it, and everyone's exaggerating how bad it is, with some so worn out from COVID concerns that they're tired of all the COVID, COVID, COVID talk, like an episode of Brady Bunch that I never saw where a younger sister complains about, I guess, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. I don't know. Of course, none of them have been tested to prove they had the virus. I know plenty of people who thought they may have had the virus, like me, and got tested only to prove that they were never infected. So, from this very anecdotal evidence, which I understand is very anecdotal, it appears that many anti-vaxxers either believe the disease is no big deal, or they already had it, but either way, way, can we please stop talking about the pandemic? Which brings me to a bigger question. What is it about the pandemic that leads so many to be in angry denial of its existence? Does the pandemic reveal something about our world that they would rather not recognize, like climate change does? Clearly, whatever world we do live in does not work well during times of crises, like a pandemic. Are they in denial of the precariousness of capitalism as it functions today in late capitalism via neoliberalism? Most of them are victims of that system, with increasing productivity not translating into increased wages. So why defend a system of which they are highly critical, 
a a system that victimizes them is the only way for them to make America great again, to deny a pandemic, to pretend what's happening is not indeed taking place. I have no idea. But being anti-vax because you think you already had COVID without ever getting any testing to confirm your self-diagnosis is a very good way to convince yourself the pandemic is over-exaggerated. Thanks to our guest today, historian of medicine and public health, Emily K. Abel, author of Sick and Tired, an Intimate History of Fatigue. Thanks to Alex for producing today's show. And thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. And this week's hangover cure is the South African cream soda, Digrain Ambulance. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>